Welcome to the Why It Works podcast. I'm Joe Kwan, your host. Together, we'll pull back the curtain to reveal the hidden principles behind why things work. Things work for a reason. Let's find out why. Today's podcast is sponsored by Mizzen and Maine, next generation dress shirts that breathe, stretch, and wick away moisture. They require no ironing, no dry cleaning, and are machine washable. For a limited time, on orders of over $100, listeners of Why It Works will receive $25 off. To receive your discount, go to the show notes at www.joquanjo.com slash whyitworks and click on the Mizzen and Main link in the sponsor section. Here with us today is Chris John Charles, former Marine, KPMG alumni, and current entrepreneur. Chris spent over a decade as a U.S. Marine, which took him all over the world, including the Middle East. I had the good fortune to work with him for a year at KPMG before he launched the entrepreneurial stage of his career. Chris is a firm believer in giving back and provides mentoring to both transitioning veterans and inner city youth. We speak to Chris from his home in New York State on a crisp autumn day. Welcome, Chris, to the Why It Works podcast, and thank you for being here. Uh, thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. So we met shortly after you left the Marines when you joined KPMG in our privacy group. As I got to know you, we sometimes discussed how it can be difficult uh, adjusting from moving from the military to civilian life and the private sector. Can you share with the audience a bit of your experience as well as that of your fellow soldiers as they left the military? It definitely was a unique experience. And and I think that if I was going to sum it up, it would be that the things that I was most proud of that I accomplished in the military, um, it seemed like the private sector absolutely didn't care about those. And and the things that the private sector was most interested in were the things that I really didn't care about, you know, because like as a, you know, military captain spending all this time, you know, a lot of the things that you're proud of are, you know, your combat experiences, your training, um, the different things that you've gone through, the shared suffering between soldiers or Marines, you know, whatever have you. But I found that, you know, as, as you try to sort of adapt into a new role, a lot of those things, while they may be related, they don't directly translate. So, I mean, you know, there, there's experiences that I can pull from those military experiences, but no one's going to, you know, tell me to come in and lead a combat unit. Just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, I just had to kind of take a step back and sort of pull out those things that maybe I would have overlooked when I was talking about my military career and realize that those are actually the things that, um, that you know, private organizations really care about, things like risk management, um, things like, you know, man- managing a budget, you know, saving, saving costs, you know, impacting an institution in, in certain ways that maybe I would have overlooked when I was talking about my career. So it sounds like that the skills are certainly there, but maybe the awareness of the emphasis of the value is, is something a bit of a learning process as you sort of went through different interviews and talked to recruiters, you started to see that you know, it wasn't the same as applying to a different military unit or maybe a different branch of the military. Right, exactly. And then even even when you do try to sort of, you know, relate to them, a lot of times your, voca- your vocabulary is just completely off. So you're, you're talking about things in ways that make perfect sense to you and you're answering the question that they've asked you, 
but the way that they're receiving it, they just have no clue what you're talking about on the other end with the things that you may be saying. So huh. and I have to get used to speaking, you know, two different languages, you know, being a translator and just adapt, which, you know, is something that every veteran is completely familiar with doing, you know, adapting and overcoming. So, Absolutely. That's yeah. great. Let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell us what you do, but do it as if you were explaining it to a five-year-old. Okay, so pretty much what I do on a daily basis right now is, you know, I, I, I trade the markets, which just basically encompass me looking at charts every day uh, <laughs> and, and finding a, a place to either either buy something when I anticipate that it's going to become more expensive later to uh-huh. make a profit that way or to sell something because I'm anticipating that it's going to become cheaper later and then I buy it back and keep the difference as a profit. So it's basically buying things when they're, uh, cheap and selling things when they're expensive is, is what okay. I do on a daily basis. Yes, buy low and sell high, right? Yeah, exactly. Great. Well, I am so happy you're here today to talk about the topic of blind leaps, and let me tell you why. One of the things you noticed and that I was fascinated with is your observation that a lot of the leadership principles you were taught in the Marines were pretty much directly applicable to working in a company. Now, I don't think there were many life and death situations in our cubicles, but (laughs) I really enjoyed getting your perspective because while we look at leadership in much the same way, your background and training are so different than mine. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that really what it comes down to is just one big principle that we always preach is just setting the example. You know, I feel that, you know, whenever you're in a position of leadership, um, the number one thing that people want to see from their leader is that, you know, they're not expecting me to do something that they wouldn't be willing to do themselves. They're not expecting me to do something that they can't do themselves. So, you know, when you demonstrate that you're willing to to go through the hard times as well as the good times with people, um, it just helps to build the interpersonal relationships where, you know, you have shared experiences, you come together as a group, and it just becomes a lot easier to, you know, perform your task as a leader when you can connect with somebody and it's just not just someone who's, you know, coming in, giving you a list of tasks and then, you know, going about their day while you go about yours. So, Yeah, I still have the uh, printout of, uh, I believe it was 11 uh, principles of leadership from the Marines. Right. It's, it's from your presentation. I, I still have that hanging up in my cubicle. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it still applies, you know, I still use those on a daily basis. So, yeah. Right. Anyone who listens to the show knows it's all about pulling out kind of the universal principles from various scenarios so we can learn more deeply about them and apply them in different scenarios. Now that you're your own boss and an entrepreneur, what parts of your military or private sector experience are informing your current business? The biggest thing is, you know, just the self-discipline, you know, because Really, you know, I wake up on a daily basis and if I don't perform, I don't eat. So, you know, I've, I've got to be disciplined. I've got to take every day seriously. Mm-hmm. And um, a, a lot of times, I, you know, I liken it to, you know, when I was executing a complex mission in, in the military, it was success mm-hmm. or failure that was defined on everything that I do. And mm-hmm. I think that because I'm used to, you know, excelling in that environment, it's been pretty, pretty e- easy for me to adjust to, you know, entrepreneurship life. And while it's not easy, I definitely feel like I, I'm better prepared for it than if I had not, you know, been through some of my past experiences. 
So. Yeah, I don't think any entrepreneur would claim that it was easy. If they did, they're probably <laughs> not a real entrepreneur. Okay. Uh, and I think they can all probably um, sort of understand that whole eat what you kill type mentality, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I promise this is the only clip I'm going to share today with a military theme, but I just, I just had to include this one. Okay. <laughs> My name is Zed. You're all here because you're the best of the best. Marines, Air Force, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, NYPD. And we're looking for one of you. Just what? What will follow is a series of simple tests for motor skills, concentration, stamina. I see we have a question. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe you already answered this, but uh, why exactly are we here? Son? Second Lieutenant Jake Jensen, West Point, graduate with honors. We're here because you're looking for the best of the best of the best. Sir! <laughs> What's so funny, Edwards? <laughs> Your boy Captain America over here. <laughs> the best of the best of the best. Sir! <laughs> Yeah, with honors. <laughs> yeah, he's just really excited, and he has no clue why we're here. <laughs> that's just, that's very funny to me. <laughs> Y'all ain't laughing, though. Okay, let's get going. So what did you see here? So, so what I kind of got from that clip was that when, when somebody wants to, uh, in a usual circumstance, when somebody wants to try to jump into something that's a complete departure from what they're currently doing, at least mm -hmm. you know, this is what I've kind of felt, um, they, they take some time to do the research on the qualifications of like what would a typical candidate look like or um, what would a typical person that's already in this role, like what do they look like? and they start to compare themselves to that. And, and I think that sometimes when you get caught up in that, you might end up selling yourself short. And if, if you look in this case, it was like in order to, to become an MIB agent, as you looked at all the other candidates, one would kind of come to the assumption that you probably need to be like a military service academy graduate, mm -hmm. maybe have some combat experience or whatever have you. But none of these things are elements that Will Smith seemed to, to possess, at least from that clip. And, Right. We all know that he's the one that got the job. So, you know, kind of the lesson to be learned here is that, like, when an opportunity arises, 
you should jump at it and let the opportunity be the judge of whether or not things are, are or aren't meant to be. You know, don't step on your own toes and eliminate yourself because you feel you aren't qualified or you aren't worthy because in the end, you know, you might end up missing out. And I think ultimately in the case of Will, it was his differences that made him a better fit, you know, than each of the other candidates for that role. They were all struggling, you know, to take the exam in the cram chair, but it was Will who decided to get up and go drag the table. Speaking from my own military experience, I'm thinking in my head that, you know, probably some of the others considered using that table themselves, but they probably hesitated because of fear that, like, it would make them look weaker than some of the uh, other members, you know, because when you get a group of Marines and soldiers and Navy, you know, each one of them is trying to find ways that they can, like, put themselves above all the others. And, you know, they're looking at each other and seeing weaknesses and just comparing. So I have a feeling that, you know, that's probably something that would have been going through some of their heads. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was, it was Will Smith's way of thinking that just completely threw all that to the side, went, got the table, took the test comfortably, and eventually went on to become a, uh, a, an agent. And I think that part of his, his breath, you know, the, the way that he brought, you know, fresh air to, to the situation was something that the men in black needed. And I think it was probably part of the reason why he ended up being a successful agent. Now, Chris, tell me, do you think that the test was to see what people would do and whether anyone would use the table? Or do you think that was just kind of a coincidence that he happened to do that and, and impress, obviously impress um, the staff who were looking on? I think that he probably threw off some of the staff. Like, you know, if you looked at some of their faces, like they're uh -huh. probably like, like, what is this guy really doing? But I think it was probably one agent, probably at uh, the character, I think Tommy Lee Jones played. Yep. That probably, you know, behind closed doors said, you know, look, this is what we need, you right. know, and, and kind of was able to convince them. But I, w I guess if I was to say, I, I know that he definitely didn't make it because of his performance on the test, because it seemed like that wasn't it, one of the, the deciding factors. But yeah, the fact that he did something different, was able to stir things up enough to where people maybe started to consider like, you know, maybe this is what we do need, even though we, you know, at first were thrown off by it. You know, you, you bring, you're making me think of some really interesting things, which are sometimes maybe even the person who's doing the hiring or looking to get, you know, to bring on a resource or get involved in a business with someone, maybe they don't even realize that someone who's not cut from the conventional cloth will be better. And so if you don't throw your hat in the ring and go in there and show what you have, then they'll never see you. And they'll never get the chance to realize, wait a second, I thought I wanted, you know, John, but now I really want Chris because Chris has shown me all these things. I never would have believed it. But now that he's here, I, like my mind is open and I'm like, wow, isn't, isn't that amazing? Won't this work so much better? Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because yeah, I definitely believe that whenever you're, you know, interviewing or looking for candidates, you always have that, that prototypical perfect candidate in your mind. Mm -hmm. um, but you probably will never find that person. Mm -hmm. But as long as you have that open mind, you know, eventually someone's going to come in and, you know, they're going to be completely different from whatever it was that you thought you had correcting your head. And they're going to prove to you that, you know, maybe this guy's worth taking a shot on. So. Great. I love this next movie and how the two characters who are racing rivals are so similar yet so different. Let's take a look. You lot go ahead, I won't be a minute. Nikki! 
Good to see you. I heard you were spending more and more time in one of these. Do you fly? <laughs> no. I don't think they'd insure me. You should try. It's good for discipline. You have to stay within the rules, stick to regulations, suppress the ego. It helps with the racing. <laughs> there I was thinking you were about to wax lyrical about the romance of flight. No, that's all bullshit. So what brings you here? Friend's wedding. Well, at least I think it was a wedding. Might have been a birthday or something. It's all a bit of a blur. How about you? Have you been at Fiorano? Pre-season testing. You're relentless. Thank you. I'm not sure that was meant as a compliment. And do you start testing? Next week? No, what are you, nuts? I didn't just win the biggest thing in my life so I could get right back to work. Why? You have to. To prove to all the people who will always say you just won it because... Because of what? Because of your accident? Snicky, is that other people or is that you? I won. Okay, and the all-important day when it came down to it, we raced on equal terms, equally good cars. And I put my life on the line and I saw it through. And you call that winning? Yes. The risks were totally unacceptable. You were prepared to die. To me, that's losing. Yes, I was. I admit it, I, I was prepared to die to beat you that day. And that's the effect you have on me. You'd pushed me that far and it felt great. I mean, hell, isn't that what we're in this for? To stare death in the face and, and to cheat it? Come on, there's nobility in that. It's, it's like being knights. <laughs> you English, you're such assholes. You know my position. 20% risk. No, 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 Nicky, don't, don't bring the percentages into this. Don't be a pro. The minute you do that, you kill what's good about this. You kill the sport. James! James! I've got to go. Careful of this thing. Your thoughts? Alright, so I really love this clip, and, and I'll tell you why. Because it has both aspects of, of what I, I think are, are, are risk takers. Okay. Um, but you have on one side what I would consider, maybe he's not a failure as a risk taker because he's still going, but his way of doing things is going to be doomed to failure at some point. And then you have another person who has the mentality of taking risks, but with what I would consider a more appropriate approach, if, if not the right approach. Um, and so the, just to paraphrase what, what, I, what I heard in the clip is, mm -hmm. you know, James says, at the end of the day, I won. I put my life on the line and I saw it through. And then Nikki responds, and, and you call that winning. You know, the risks were totally unacceptable. You were prepared to die. And to me, that's losing. Mm -hmm. Then he goes on and he says, 20% risk. That, that's, my, that's my philosophy. Mm -hmm. so what I hear from that is he went into, like he approaches, you know, everything that he does, especially when he's dealing, dealing with the risky things such as, you know, car racing mm -hmm. with a predetermined risk tolerance. And for me, that's the most important thing to consider and to establish with, with any risk that you take in life. And it especially applies to when you're, when you're taking blind leaps. Um, because anybody can take a leap. I mean, you know, you can wake up tomorrow and decide that, you you know, you want to be, you know, a pro basketball player or whatever and quit your job. And just go do <laughs> Unlikely. It, right? And it's possible, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. That you it's can, a high risk maneuver, but it's possible. You're <laughs> you right. Absolutely be successful in it. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, you're, you're not really taking the risk the correct way, you know, right. the way I, I would 
you know, I would kind of classify. So I say like with any, with any leap, there's two outcomes, obviously, there's success and there's failure. And I think that many people when, you know, when they're faced with taking a leap, you know, they may hesitate to take that leap because of fear of that failure. Mm-hmm. Um, I would e- I'll probably even go a step further and say that there's like actually four outcomes. So there's, there's, um, there's huge life-changing success and small success. And then there's huge devastating failure and then there's small failure. Mm-hmm. And then of those four, there's only one of those, only one of those things can't be allowed to happen under any circumstance. And that's the huge devastating failure. And the mm-hmm. reason is, you know, that's the one that's going to kill your dreams almost immediately. Mm-hmm. That's the one that's going to be extremely hard to come back from. Mm-hmm. And it can happen, you know, by being too reckless, by, you know, deciding that tomorrow you're going to quit your job and go for some, you know, crazy, crazy thing, you know, on a whim, you know, going all in with your life savings on a bright idea. Or it can even occur from letting small failures just linger for way too long until they become huge failures that you can't come back from. So we have to eliminate that, that fourth option, the, the huge devastating failure. And when we el- eliminate that, it leaves three. Right, huge success, small success, and small failure. But like, how do you dis- define small failure? Right, because mm-hmm. it's, it's all relative to the individual. What I might consider no big deal, you might consider a huge deal, and and vice versa. But you know, we can usually like classify them as being related to either time or money. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the rule that I like to have is never put yourself in a position to lose more time and or money on a single leap of faith than that which you can stomach and bounce back from. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So th- this way you're not pouring your life savings into something that's not working and you're not wasting your time chasing a dream that doesn't seem to be coming to fruition. And, you know, when you reach that predetermined point of loss, so like, you know, like um, Nikki mentioned his 20%, you stop, you assess, you determine if you want to try it again with a different approach or if you just need to abandon ship altogether because this is just something that's not meant to be. But at least when you approach it, you know, with this way of thinking, you're free to take that leap knowing that, you know, you're either going to succeed or you're going to fail. But when you do fail, you live to fight another day and it's not a catastrophic, you know, ended life ending failure, right? Because, you know, James did win that race, but his risk was his life. What if he lost his life? You know, right. being that reckless, it's, it's only going to be a matter of time before things catch up with you when you play those types of odds. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying about the different categories of outcomes. And one of the things I think underlying that kind of implicit in that is the actors or, you know, the person's self-control. Right. right. So, I mean, you know, when you see people who are hugely successful, you hear about the risks they take, but you don't hear about the unsexy, the unglamorous, very kind of calculated risks that they took on the, on, along the way that kind of helped them or maybe put them in a position to take what seems like to us maybe a bigger risk, but to them, they had already prepared for it with all the smaller victories along the way. And I think you only get that if you have like self-discipline to control yourself because it's very easy to get swept up like, oh, now's my big chance. Let me just throw everything into this and I'm going to hit it big without having to, you know, worry about it anymore or win a whole bunch of small battles. I mean, I feel like you see that a lot, you know, with people that are always kind of chasing that 
that kind of one big easy win as opposed mm-hmm. to being more disciplined and, and putting in the time that it requires oftentimes. Right. And I think sometimes, you know, when people achieve success and, you know, they want to go back and tell their story. You know, a lot of times they, they make it seem like it was some great idea that they woke up with one day and, you know, you know the next day they were billionaires, you know. But, you know, if, if you truly look at the facts, I mean, you, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody that, that struck it big unless, you know, they had like some type of huge nest egg to really get reckless with to the point where it wasn't going to ruin them. But, you know, for most people, you know, they try something and, you know, they might be on the right track, but maybe it just needs to be tweaked a little bit. So then they go back to the drawing board, they accept, okay, this idea is not going to work. Let me tweak it. Let me try again. And they just rinse and reuse, rinse and reuse until they finally hit that one thing that works. And the reason why they're able to do that is because they didn't they didn't go bankrupt on their first idea and get stubborn and, and keep chasing it and forcing it until they were forced to just say, I quit. So it sounds like in your philosophy or way of thinking about it, a blind leap is not equal to a big leap, right? I mean, it, it doesn't have to be something that bets the whole farm or bets the whole house just because it's, it's something that you have to be courageous to do. Right, exactly. And, and I think that one thing I want to just kind of make sure is that, you know, failure is a, is a huge part of this. You know, it's, you know, that, that, that's why we're talking about risk is because there's always a chance of success just as well as failure. Mm-hmm. And um, you have to be okay with the possibility of failure in order to be a successful leaper or risk taker or, or however you want to classify it. Because, you know, that's, that's the reality. You're never going to be right 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just have to set it up so that when you are wrong, you're able to learn from your mistakes and keep going as opposed to letting that one mistake be the end because you just have no other choice at that point. Yeah, I totally agree. This next movie resulted in me getting a nickname. So, (laughs) you know, my last name is Quan. Yeah. And for three years, a wonderful law school colleague called me the ambassador of Quan or just the ambassador. Well, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to do what you all think I'm going to do, which is just pull this out. Well, let me just let me just say, as I ease out of the office, I helped build. I'm sorry, but it's a fact that there is such a thing as manners. A way of treating people. These fish have manners. These fish have manners. In fact, they're coming with me. I'm starting a new company, and the fish will come with me. You can call me sentimental. The fish, they're coming with me. Okay. If anybody else wants to come with me, this moment will be the moment of something real and fun and inspiring in this God-forsaken business, and we will do it together. Who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? 
Who's coming with me besides Flipper here? This is embarrassing. All right. Wendy, shall we? Oh, Jer, I'm, no, I'm three months away from the pay increase. I... Okay. Okay. So what was going on in that moment? Okay, so I guess what I see is so we're talking about blind leaps once again. So um, I think that a lot of times that has to do with kind of chasing your passion. And mm -hmm. I think that unless you're in a unique situation that, you know, pursuing your passion is sort of a natural progression to your current career path, there's going to be a point in time where, you know, you're going to have to leave your current role, your current job, organization, whatever have you. Um, in this particular instance, Jerry, it seemed like he was getting fired. But mm -hmm. um, I think that just the overall thing about what I'm about to say just applies to whether you're voluntarily leaving or get laid off, whatever have you. Mm -hmm. um, it's always Im important to do so gracefully um, and not just because it's the decent thing to do, but also because, you know, if things end up not going planned, because like I said, there's always that risk of failure. You're going to be in a much better position if you can rely on an old boss or coworkers to help you, you know, either return to your job at a later date or maybe give references for another one. And, and you're able to do that because your departure was on good terms and you didn't go around telling everybody to kiss off. Like he did. <laughs> um, and so from that, you know, that that's kind of the first thing I took. And then another thing that I took was when he asked the question of, you know, who's coming with me? He looked around and everyone just looked at him like he was, you know, just straight nuts. Like, you right, know, right. I was going to go with him. And, and I can relate to this, you know. Um, like when I left the military and, and then later did, you know, with my position in the corporate world, okay, I didn't, like, I wasn't looking for anyone to come with me. So I'm not like relating to that part. But there were plenty of people that gave me that same look, you know, that right. I was, like I was out of my mind. And, you know, I thought about it, uh, did a lot of thinking about it, and I realized that, you know, it's for, it's for good reason, um, because anyone who does, who has done what I did, which is, you know, leaving something that you seem to be doing a great job at to try something completely different that could be either be a success or a failure, the odds are just naturally stacked against you. And I feel like one of the things you have to focus on is you have to make sure that before you do something like this, you have to develop your what I call your edge and be firmly aware of your edge before you make that move. And um, to me, an edge is nothing more than just like a collection of all of the things unique about you that shift the odds further in your favor. So they can be like your particular skill set. Um, it could be related to your network, um, your community of like-minded individuals, maybe your unique mindset, your personality. Um, you know, if, if maybe if you're going to start your own venture, it could be something like your intellectual property, um, your past experiences. These are all things that collectively are going to, you know, make you more likely to succeed at your current um, attempted venture as opposed to failing at it. Um, and, you know, to kind of summarize it, you basically are going to fill in the blank on this sentence. It's like, I am uniquely qualified to succeed at this because blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so as an example, it's like, you know, maybe someone wanted to start their own catering business, right? Um, 
first of all, you would obviously need, need to know how to cook, right? People would have to enjoy eating your food. But success would probably also be helped by, you know, your ability to, or the fact that you're networked in with owners from lo- owners of local venues in your community, so that maybe now you're on their list of people to call, you know, when they're putting on an event, um, maybe having good interpersonal skills or experience with sales, so that you can convince others to give you their business. Um, maybe your particular approach has a unique twist on it that kind of differentiates yourself from everyone else who's running a catering business, and, you know, in a good way, to the point where someone might experience enjoy your experience a little bit more than others. And, you know, there's just really like infinite ways and things that you can bring all of your unique skill sets or unique attributes together to shift the odds of success in your favor. Um, Because, I mean, if you look at any successful company, it was like, you know, they had a pretty simple idea, but they went about executing it in a way that was never done before. Right. So Amazon, you know, like when they started, they sold books like, you know, that that's not something that was completely crazy. But the unique thing about them was they decided to do it online. Right. You know, and you, you look at any of these innovative companies and, you know, they're always doing something that seems pretty simple. But then they have some unique thing, some unique edge that shifted the, the factor of success further in their favor than failure. I want to repeat something that you said, because I think it's uh, it's really great the whole concept of the edge and that fill in the blank sentence. I am uniquely qualified to succeed at this because, and to really know what that is in terms of who you are, in terms of your access to resources. It's, I feel like it's something that um, many of us, and I include myself in this group, don't do often enough to do that kind of like analysis and assessment. And I think it's incredibly powerful uh, when you get that right. Right. Yeah, I mean, because that, that's the key. Because a lot of times um, you'll find out something. Like you, you may have an idea, but then when you start to think about, you know, what, what is my edge? Who do I know? You, you really find that one thing that's really going to take your idea from just being that one thing in your head to something that you can actually execute. And, you know, and go forward with and because, you know, a lot of people, I think, have ideas of things that they would love to do, but they don't really know the first place to start. But I think that when you really sit back and you look at your network and you see all the people that you know, I mean, I think that most people will find that they actually do have a path to start. And, you know, you just have to you have to think about it first. And then once you think about it, you identify it and then you go from there. I'm going to steal that from you, Chris. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. Someone who looks exactly like me, but is much less masculine, read and really enjoyed the book this next clip is based on, uh, this next movie uh, clip is based on. So let's take a look. He looks exactly like you there. Yeah, but he's much less masculine, I must say. Dear David, we haven't had any communication in a while, and it's given me time I needed to think. Remember when you said we should live with each other and be unhappy so we could be happy? Consider it a testimony to how much I love you that I spent so long pouring myself into that offer, trying to make it work. But a friend took me to the most amazing place the other day. It's called the Augustium. Octavian Augustus built it to house his remains. When the barbarians came, they trashed it along with everything else. The great Augustus, Rome's first true great emperor. How could he have imagined that Rome, the whole world as far as he was concerned, would one day be in ruins? During the Dark Ages, someone came in here and stole the emperor's ashes. 
in the 12th century became a fortress for the Colonna family, then a bullring. They stored fireworks in here after that. Nowadays it's used as a bathroom for the homeless people, so you better watch your step going down. It's one of the quietest and loneliest places in Rome. The city has grown up around it over centuries. It feels like a precious wound, like a heartbreak you won't let go of because it hurts too good. I like it messy. We all want things to stay the same, David. I guess the guy before me must have been some angel, huh? Settle for living in misery because we're afraid of change, of things crumbling to ruins. Then I looked around in this place at the chaos it's endured, the way it's been adapted, burned, pillaged, then found a way to build itself back up again, and I was reassured. Maybe my life hasn't been so chaotic. It's just the world that is, and the only real trap is getting attached to any of it. Ruin is a gift. Ruin is the road to transformation. Hey. You ready? Tell me your impressions. So to pull that quote that Joey Roberts said towards the end, um, we all want things to stay the same, to settle for living in misery because we're afraid of change, afraid mm -hmm. of things crumbling into ruins. But ruin is a gift. It's the road to transformation. So, you know, just to circle back on, you know, what we were speaking about failure once again, I would substitute the word ruin for failure. Right. And just, you know, kind of talk about, you know, the fear of failure and how it can be such a paralyzing thing. I think that for some people, you know, they have, they, they have a clear passion in their mind, but for whatever reason, they, they just won't pursue it because, you know, they don't want to fail or they're afraid to fail. And for many of them, you know, the security of whatever it is that they're currently doing, even if it might make them miserable on a day-to-day -day basis, is better for them than taking a risk of possibly coming face to face with that failure and, and you know it really is just the way things are but you know we kind of mentioned it when you know we brought up like amazon and stuff before um many who achieve success they experience that managed failure along the way they see failure not as an end of my journey or an end of my road but a teaching point and a lesson there's a lesson to be learned from it also, like we said before, they're not stubborn about it and let that small failure turn into a large or an expensive one. Um, they've learned what not to do throughout that failure. And by following, you know, the concepts that we're speaking about, it didn't destroy them. They let it make them better. And just to, just to be clear, you know, failure is never the goal. But because you're likely to experience it in some form or fashion along the way, whenever you're going down a path of the unknown, um, you just have to be ready to put it put an end to it as, as quickly as you can, um, see it as a gift as opposed to looking at it straight from a negative light and just move on because it's a part of the process. So uh, I'm going to tell everyone, Chris John Charles told me to fail more. <laughs> <laughs> like, I said, like I said, it's never the goal, but I think that a lot of people, um, so, you know, back when I was going through Office of Canada School, yes. you know, Pretty much all of us were, you know, in our own way, we were, we were studs, right? You know, we, were, we had Division I athletes from certain universities. You had top scholars from others. I mean, just if, if you looked at everyone's biography, you would just consistently see people who have done well in life. And, the best of the best of the best. Right. But at some point, you know, that, that school is designed that you're going to fail. 
Mm. And it's going to be something that, you know, you're going to be very uncomfortable at feeling with. Mm -hmm. And, and it's because, you know, we have to see how, you know, our military officers can react to failure because when it comes to leading people into combat, you know, as much as we try to avoid it, casualties are a part of their real life. Yeah. And, at the end of the day, the officer has to be the one that keeps everyone together and keeps going and is able to, to take that failure, to take that one thing that he never wanted to happen. But guess what? It happened and there's nothing you can do about it. How are you going to gather your troops, get them focused back on the mission and keep going? You never want to fail. Like, you know, whenever I was on a mission or, you know, I was, I was you know, leading training, whatever have you, I never wanted anyone to get injured. I never wanted anyone to, to, you know, become a casualty. You know, I always tried to strive to make sure that everyone that I went out with, we came back and came back whole. But, you know, there was a reality that that might not happen. And if that didn't happen, you know, I needed to be the one that made sure that I mitigated it. And if it was just one, then it was just one. And that one didn't turn into, you know, everybody. What I'm hearing from you is that it's not so much the failure, it's the response to the failure and how you put that in perspective, how you learn with it, how you deal with it. And I almost feel like when you're super successful early on in life, it kind of doesn't prepare you for that level of failure sometimes. Sometimes it's better to have someone who's had to fight and scrap for everything and fail and, and get to that point versus someone who either because they've been lucky or gifted has just breezed through life up until this point. And then they, all of a sudden they fail miserably at something when the stakes are high and they have no ability to like process or deal with that in a positive fashion. And you certainly don't want that on the battlefield when, uh, you know, every lives are on the line. Absolutely. Yeah. You never want somebody to experience their first taste of failure when when the stakes matter the most mm-hmm. you know you, you you want them to get whatever bad habits bad reactions you know whatever you want to call it you want them to get that out of their system ahead of time like even with, with, with what i'm doing right now you know mm-hmm. you're trading the markets on a day-to-day basis you know if, if you ever decided that you wanted to put your money in someone's hands so that they could grow it for you i mean i if someone told me that they've never lost a single cent in the marketplace, I mean, <laughs> me, I would, I would be like, you know, I don't want this guy. He's not the one that, that really knows what he's doing because it's mm-hmm. the guy who's experienced, you know, making that bad mistake, losing that, losing some money and in turn, they're still around to, to, you know, to bet a little bit more, well, not bet money, but to make another dollar because they've been able to withstand it, react to it, and they know how to handle it when it happens in the future. So I feel like what I'm hearing from you is the failure gives you experience, but what you learn from the failure and do with the failure can lead to wisdom. And, and that's where you want to get to, right? You, you want to get the positive thing from the failure and not have the failure break you or right. send you careening off into some worse path. And then there's also, too, is that you don't necessarily – not in all circumstances, you don't have to wait until the failure happens to you in order to learn from it. And I think that ties into just, you know, trying to learn as much about whatever it is that you're trying to get into, you know, read books. I mean, because you can hear or read about all of these mistakes that people have made as they try to lead the footsteps before you. And Mm -hmm. if you can avoid making those mistakes because you learn from those people, you know, that also helps as well. Great, great. 
Now, with a topic like blind leaps, you have to cover the fear factor. Right. So right. let's watch as people are deciding whether to literally take a leap. I think this would be a perfect time for them to try jumping off a 10. You're so sure, Coach, but uh, okay. you guys will be fine. Just do everything you did off a 5-meter, then off a 7-meter, 10-meters, just a little bit higher. Coach, will it help if we scream? If it makes you feel better, yes. So we're about to jump off of the 10 meter, which is the highest dive in the Olympics. I think they're gonna do fine and it's gonna be quite entertaining. Go! Okay. Everyone looks like ants up here. I'm sorry, no. This legit so scary. I can't even walk to the edge to show you what it looks like. Getting up there looking over the edge is so scary and then having to like count yourself off to jump is probably one of the scariest things I've ever did. Baby, but like I hit my chest and like I thought I was like, oh my god, it's over. My life is over. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> well, I think they did awesome. It's not an easy thing to go jump off a 10 meter platform. It is quite scary when you get up there. The pool looks about that big. I think you guys did a great job of just stepping out of your comfort zones and taking that leap of faith, jumping off. Yeah. We weren't doing anything except for stepping off, and it was scary. I respect divers more than any other athlete. Divers, okay, you guys win. <laughs> you won. You won. You're the best. Bring back any memories? Uh, yeah, it did because we actually do a drill like that in, you know, in the military. So, I guess my reaction to this, to put things simply, is you know, when you're talking about leaps of faith, you know, there's just, just going to come a point where you just need to jump. You know, yeah. there's, there's nothing left to do. You're, you're never going to be any more ready than you are right now. And when you reach that point, the only way to get past the flood of emotions that you're going through is just to jump. I mean. When you, when you look at that clip, you see that like each each one of those people were pretty much at their worst emotional states right before the jump. Some of them couldn't even look over the platform that mm -hmm. was that bad. But in each in each instance, in each one of those cases, they've all done all of the preparation that they need to do. That instructor said that they're ready. They jumped off the five meter board. They jumped off the seven meter board. Each one of them is ready, but none of none of them feel that way until they jump. And then, like, they can seem like completely different people. Like, you know, that, that fear that was consuming them was completely gone. Um, they all look like happier people. And I'm sure mm -hmm. that inside their mind, they're a lot happier that they took the leap as opposed to chickening out and having it lingering in their mind, you know, afterwards. You know, what if I would have did this? You know, maybe I should have did it this way, whatever have you. But ultimately, the biggest point is that sometimes the biggest obstacle is the one that's in your own mind. And, and you have to get over that mental block before anything else is going to happen. I'd love to get your thoughts, Chris, because you've been in scenarios like this, perhaps where people have had to take a blind leap, um, had to exercise a bit of courage, and not everyone is able to do it. 
And so in your mind, like, what have you seen in terms of what might differentiate people who, with an equal level of preparation, uh, similar backgrounds uh, that distinguishes people who actually can go through and take the leap versus people who can? Or, or maybe there isn't anything you can point to. I'm just curious what your experience has been. I mean, there can be many different ways. And I think that, you know, at least, at least with me, a lot of the times, you know, when I had to do something that kind of required a certain level of courage and throwing mm-hmm. fear to the side, a lot of times what I did to get over it was the fear of the opposite, right? So like in the military, you know, just to go back to that, and there's a lot of things that we do that can sometimes be a little bit crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you're in a, a unit where everyone's together, everyone's pretty close, pretty tight knit, and you feel like you have an obligation to not let, you know, someone next to you down or to not have someone on the other side of you think any less of you. And a lot of times when you, if you can't build up the courage to take that step forward, then essentially what you've done is you've become a coward in the eyes of those around you. And sometimes that's enough to just say, you know what, I need to take this step. Mm -hmm. You know, so you're actually using the fear of something else in order to completely make you forget about the fear of what it is that you have directly in front of you. And for others, you know, they, they just may be naturally bold people who, you know, it takes a lot to scare them and, and, and they can deal with it in other ways. So with the opposite approach, I find that pretty interesting. Not that there's only one approach, but I find that pretty fascinating. It sounds like what's going on there is you're reframing the fear with another fear that's even greater. Mm-hmm. that gives you that extra push because with just the current situation, if you were just thinking about, oh, I'm going to get hurt or, oh, I'm going to look silly or whatever, that's not enough to get you over. But then you switch it to like, okay, if I don't, then all these other things are going to happen. That's much worse. So I'm going to go ahead and and I'm going to do it. Right. So you've got, yeah, you've got bullets flying over your head. You know, the, the most natural human thing is to keep your head down. Mm -hmm. Right. But you know, you've got a job to do and you know that, you know, if you don't get up and do what needs to be done, everyone around you is going to look at you and see you in a current state cowering behind, you know, some wall afraid to take action and afraid to do what needs to be done right now. And, you know, for me, I I could never let that consume me. And, you know, that was always the driving force to, Hey, this has to get done. I have to meet the expectations. I have to live up to, you know, the, the camaraderie and things that we built in this unit. I can't let that go, go away. And so there's a job I need to do. And I know that, X, Y, or Z, if he were in this position, would do the exact same thing. So it's on me to, to, to make it happen. Do you think it gets easier as you encounter fearful situations, whether in business or, you know, in the military or just in your personal life, and you, you take those steps to overcome and, and you see that the result is great or it wasn't as bad as you thought? Do, do you think it gets easier once people start acting positively on their fears? Um, I think it's it's easier to look at it from a whole perspective. Like, you know, you're looking at it from the perspective, like I need to do this in order to accomplish the mission. Mm-hmm. But I think that the fact of doing this, so like, you know, I have to stick my head up right now when there's rounds coming over, over my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that that ever gets any less fearful right. the first time, or at least for me, it, it never got easier right, in, right. in terms of that. But just because you've gone through the experience of, you know, 
that entire thing. At least now you know what you need to do the right way. Like you have more experience in terms of doing it the right way, but mm-hmm. the actual fear to me is always that same fear. It's always that same gut wrenching fear that you just have to get over. And then once you get over it, you kind of just fall back on your experiences and your training and you kind of forget about that thing. But that initial fear is, is, is always, you know, it's always the same for me. And to your point, I think that fear is normal and good, right? I mean, that is a dangerous situation. If you're not afraid, then there's probably maybe you don't want this guy leading you who has no fear in the face of like really horrific things happening. Exactly. Yeah. So it's good. It's good that you are able to acknowledge that fear and, and make it result in you making smart decisions as opposed to reckless ones. Great. Great. Chris, it's been a real treat to talk to you and hear your expertise on blind leaps. What updates or things you're working on would you like to share with our audience and how can people get in touch with you? So I do have a couple of things that, you know, I have sort of up and running right now, but they're still a little bit away from coming to fruition. So, um, you know, some of them are related to some of my trading endeavors and some real estate investment things that I have going on. So I think if anyone, you know, who's been listening to this podcast is, has any interest in, you know, keeping up with that, I would say LinkedIn is probably the, the best place to connect with me. And, you know, I'm always happy to grow my network. Thank you, Chris, for sharing your insights on why it works. Yeah, and thank you, Joe. I mean, you had a lot of impressive people on this podcast. So the fact that you were, you know, willing to invite me, you know, it's kind of a humbling experience and, you know, it's an honor. So, you know, definitely happy to be here. Oh, thank you, Chris. One day I'll say, I knew Chris John Charles. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank All right, you. Thanks, Joe. Like a drill instructor and yelling, two great books to go with this podcast are Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert and Moneyball. The Art of Winning an Unfair Game by Michael Lewis. Both are unexpected and memorable tales of transformation. To receive a free copy of either or another audiobook of your choice, just go to audibletrial.com slash whyitworks. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash whyitworks for your free audiobook. To support our show, please leave a rating or comment become a sponsor of why it works by going to www.patreon.com slash why it works that's www.patreon.com slash why it works thank you and remember the enemy of learning is boring Thanks for listening to this episode of Why It Works. For more information about Joquan Joe coaching, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit joquanjo.com. And stay tuned for our next Why It Works adventure.